Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning. It is Wednesday, March 4th, 2020, and this is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today, in our second portion, I'll be speaking with evangelist Troy Guy, a nuclear engineer by trade and a self-professed evangelical Catholic, and we'll talk about his new CD, Mary, the Mother of Our Lord. But we're also going to spend a little time talking about the importance of evangelization for Catholic Christians. That portion of the show is going to be pre-recorded, so we won't be able to take any of your phone calls. But we're live at the moment, and I want to welcome everyone listening to us on KEDC 88.5 FM Hearn Bryan College Station. And also welcome to our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM Lorena Waco. And also a shout-out to our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. Uh, the phone number here is 85-LOVE-RED-C, 855-683-7332. We're going to have a pretty busy morning this morning because we're going to have a couple of other interviews uh, that Thaddeus Romanski, our general station manager, has prepared morning, for Deacon us. Mike. Good morning. How are you, Thaddeus? I'm great. You're right. We've got a packed show this morning. We've got uh, coming up in just a few seconds, we're going to hear from... Anya Fitzgerald, who is the local director of Waco 40 Days for Life, talking about their 40 Days campaign and how people uh, in Waco and outside of Waco can join in a prayerful presence outside of the Planned Parenthood there. Let's hear from Anya right now. Catholic Radio's Red Sea Roundup. I am really pleased to have on the phone for a few minutes with us the local director of Waco 40 Days for Life, Miss Anya Fitzgerald. Good morning, Anya. Good morning, Thaddeus. Thank you for having me on the radio. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Now, those of you who are listening, you might be thinking, boy, she doesn't sound like she's from around here. And that's that's true, isn't it, Anya? But you, you had a, a funny way of explaining how you got from, from the Emerald Isle to, to Texas. Tell us about that story real briefly. Yes, for sure. Sure. Well, I grew up in uh, rural Ireland and there wasn't many jobs. So I took a job with an international oil company and I worked in the UK for five years. But then all roads eventually lead to Houston if you're in the oil business. (laughs) So that's where I ended up in 2000. And then around 2008, I had a big conversion back to my faith. And part of that was spurred by local involvement in 40 Days for Life in Houston. And I um, left the corporate life and did a master's in pastoral ministry. And eventually I ended up, I I knew I wanted to move back to a smaller town and actually have a house. So I I ended up in Waco. Wow. That is an awesome story. I did not know any of those details before we started talking this morning. And I definitely want to have you back on to round up to talk about that story and let people know who you are and and that you're there in, in Waco. Now you're collaborating with 40 Days for Life, you're the local director of Waco 40 Days for Life, and you're working in concert with um, Pro-Life Waco, John Pashada and Karenet, you said, and what y'all are doing right now is 
that 40 Days for Life campaign. Tell, tell us about that and talk to us about what's going on now. 40 Days for Life runs every year through Lent. So it started on Ash Wednesday. And we're out there every day in front of the Waco Planned Parenthood facility from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. We pray in one-hour shifts, almost like adoration, continuous unbroken prayer. Mm -hmm. And we sign people up to pray for each of those hours every single day. So what we really need are people to come out and pray. That's to pray to end abortion, because it is a spiritual battle. And we can change the laws, but we have to change hearts and minds in order for laws to really take hold. Something that you can reassure people about is you're not necessarily asking for the sidewalk counselors. That's a completely, that's a related, but it's a separate ministry. These are ordinary folks just being asked to come and lend their presence and be in solidarity with the, the women and the unborn and the, the workers to a sense inside too, and praying visibly and publicly, right? Yes, that's exactly right. In fact, we would specifically ask people in our guidelines, we have printed guidelines, we would ask people to not interact with Planned Parenthood clients or personnel, that as prayer volunteers, we are there to pray and to witness to the community. And in fact, we ask our Waco volunteers to pray at a little distance from the driveway entry to Planned Parenthood and to let the sidewalk counselors, which is a connected but separate ministry, to let those sidewalk counselors do what they do best, which is to reach out to the women in love and compassion Mm -hmm. and offer them choices and a chance, like one last chance before they go in that, that door to the abortion facility. But that's a completely separate ministry to the prayer ministry that 40 Days for Life is organizing. Right. But it helps to create that climate of peace, of patience, of uh, witness, and of love ultimately, right? Absolutely. Like love, compassion, yes. um, care, that a lot of the times a woman going into the abortion facility, if they say afterwards, if she just had seen a sign, she asked God for a sign, if she had one person in her life who was really supporting her, that she would have felt enough support to get through this crisis pregnancy. And what we always say is let's remove the crisis, not the pregnancy, and let's be a sign of hope to her that there is a Christian community out there who's willing to embrace her and say, if she's willing to take a chance and choose life. That's incredible. What a difference one person's commitment to prayer can make. Talk to us about the, the, the place of the Waco Clinic amongst the other kind of central Texas communities and how it affects towns and cities outside of Waco itself. Yes, it's an amazing um observation it's something we've seen is that only approximately 20 percent of the clients who are entering the Planned Parenthood abortion facility in Waco are from McLennan County Waco is in McLennan County 80 percent of those clients are from farther away Mm. and that includes Fort Worth Georgetown College Station Mm -hmm. so we're really the local center unfortunately for abortions in central texas 
So, and it also means that now that there's no Planned Parenthood in College Station anymore, because it closed, as everybody saw in the unplanned movie, that Waco Planned Parenthood is uh, one of the closest Planned Parenthoods to College Station. Sort of as, as a mirror image, you would be overjoyed if you had some significant percentage of, of your prayer companions there who were not from Waco and McLennan County, right? You'd love to have people from the surrounding towns and cities come and be on the sidewalk, lending that support to those to those women, as you said. Absolutely. And in fact, we have groups coming from Harker Heights, Coppers Cove, uh, Corsicana, Meridian, Killeen, um, north of us, Abbott and Penelope, and we have the 40 Days for Life group who are in College Station. They actually come and pray in the spring campaign in Waco. Uh, College Station 40 Days for Life have their own campaign mm-hmm. in the fall, but in spring, uh, they bring people up to, to Waco to pray in the Waco campaign. That, so, is, yes, that is beautiful. We see groups, yeah. Okay. So Anya, we're drawing to the close of our brief conversation, but I know it's not going to be our last time that we talk. But again, let people know how can they sign up and get involved as um, members of the sidewalk prayer effort? Yes. So to sign up for 40 Days for Life in Waco, there's you can go to 40daysforlife.com backslash Waco and sign up online. Or you can call me. My number is 210-542-5700, 210-542-5700. Or email me, prolifeonya, A-I-N-E, at gmail.com. I know my name is difficult, but it's A-I-N-E. And I just wanted to end up saying, Thaddeus, that we, we know all the time from Planned Parenthood internal figures that when there is a prayer presence on the sidewalk, that no-show rates can go as high as 75%. So a lot of the lives we save, we're never going to even know. I was out on the sidewalk this morning, and one of the prayer volunteers said, I saw a mom and a girl come in here, wait a few moments, and then they drove out and drove away. So we'll never really know the story there, but we see that kind of stuff all the time. That is so hopeful. And what a wonderful thing to hear about. And Anya, if people are not able to fit into their schedule to be on the sidewalk, how else can they can they help out Waco 40 Days for Life? Yeah, well, there's two other ways. Um, sorry, Tadia. Uh, another way that can help out if you're not able to be out there personally is to donate financially so that we can support the people who are out there. We buy a lot of things for all the different events. We buy T-shirts and yard signs to give away. Uh, We just want to get that message out there, pray to end abortion. So if you see those signs around the city, it's because someone has bought them. So we would really appreciate any donations so that we can further increase that message and that presence in the city and the surrounding areas. Right now, the best way is just to call me and I can take credit card donations over the phone or obviously always checks or cash. I hope this is... Uh, just the beginning of many conversations that we'll we'll have together about all the good work that you're doing there in Waco, and we can't wait to get you on for a longer conversation to hear that story of your conversion. It sounds it sounds compelling. So thank you very much. You know where to go, folks. Go to 40daysforlife.com backslash Waco, correct? Yes, that's correct. All right. Thank you. God bless you, Anya. Have a, have a beautiful Lent. Bye-bye. Thank you, Tedious. 
wonderful interview, and it's an important reminder, especially for those of us here in the Bryan College Station area, because the clinic here closed, but the fight has not ended yet. And Absolutely right. We need to remember that we need to keep all the people in our prayers, and if we're able to, join the group up in Waco to pray to end abortion in the Waco area as it has ended here in Bryan College Station. One of the things I did want to mention in this first segment still is this weekend, the Red Sea Family Retreat's coming up, and it begins Friday evening. It will also uh, be on Saturday, and uh, I heard that uh, the ticket sales went very well. We have lots of people signed up. We sure do. We have got... Uh, we're bursting at the seams, you might say. Uh, there are still spots available. People can still come and get on the list and be a part of the family retreat at St. Thomas Aquinas in College Station. The registration is redsearadio.org slash retreat. $35 for an entire family. $35 for an entire that. family. Yes. Lunch provided. You're going to have a fish fry provided by the Knights of Columbus of St. Thomas in cooperation with the Aggie Knights of Columbus on Friday evening. Great speakers, all centered around the spirituality of St. Therese of Lisieux and how to incorporate that into family life. I'm really excited about it. And especially during the season of Lent, there is no better guide than the little flower. That's true. Very, very true. Yes. So we've got got two minutes uh, left, Deacon Mike, and what else do you want to, what else you want to talk about? Got anything else on your mind? Well, I did want to mention that as we're approaching Lent and uh, we're encouraged to practice the season of Lent through prayer, almsgiving, and, of course, charity. Um, So many times we find it difficult to make changes in our life, and the whole season of Lent is intended for us to, through the practice of prayer, of almsgiving, and um, to find ways to slowly amend our life. Uh, we have the Red Sea Challenge. Uh, yes, the Lent. Listening Challenge. Yes. yes. And uh, this is personal for me because I was say, yeah. my entire experience here with the Red Sea Radio started with a decision during Lent one time to turn off the music and start listening to Red Sea Radio, and it's made an impact in my life, and that's... I would say so. Now, isn't it true to say that you would have, before that, you would have said, I don't listen to talk radio, or... Exactly. I would have only, uh, I said, I only listen to music. And so I invite everybody to take the Lenten Listening Challenge, turn on the radio to Red Sea, encourage others to do so. And we're going to go to a break. And on the other side, as promised, we're going to be talking to Troy Guy. So stay tuned for that. And we're back, and as promised in a moment, we're going to be talking with Troy Guy, a former Baptist, a nuclear engineer, and a self-professed evangelical Catholic. 
Uh, just a quick reminder, this program is pre-recorded, so we won't be able to take any of your phone calls. But welcome to the show. Troy Guy, how are you? I am doing fantastic, Deacon Mike. How are you doing today? I cannot complain. Uh, the weather is still reasonable today when we're recording this, and tomorrow it's supposed to be cold and rainy when we're actually airing the program. So I like today. <laughs> yeah, well, and uh, here in Houston, we're having the same kind of uh, gray clouds and uh, overcast, expecting rain as well. But it's uh, great to be here, great to be talking with you and also the audience and listeners. Wonderful. There's a couple of things I'd like to talk to you about today. And one of them is you have put out a CD on Mary, the mother of our Lord. And uh, it's a great CD. I uh urge our uh, listeners to get it, but before we talk about the CD itself, being a former Baptist, how difficult was it to come to grips with the Catholic understanding of Mary, the mother of our Lord? Well, it was difficult as a uh, Southern Baptist in particular. Uh, I come from a, uh, a long line of Baptist roots, uh, as far back as we can tell, uh, we are all Baptists in our family, and so, uh, at least on my father's side. And so, as a Baptist for 25 years, I, I can remember our uh, pastor often, um, you know, getting the urge to talk about uh, the uh, errors in the Catholic faith and the Catholic Church. And so, many times uh, when he began to speak on this, he would speak on the errors of, of the Roman Catholic understanding of who Mary is. And so, you know, as a Protestant, I saw, uh, I b felt right in love with that. I mean, I, every time I went by a Catholic church, I would, sure enough, there would be a display of Mary and, you know, there's uh, icons and images of Mary on the walls. And, you know, we'd always see those in Catholic churches. And of course, we would always hear that Hail Mary prayer uh, that we were warned against uh, so much. But Ultimately, I came to the point that I began seeing that there were so many misconceptions about Mary, and uh, my love for her has grown since I've become a Catholic, uh, but it did take me about 15 years to see the great biblical and historical roots uh, for why Catholics believe what they do about Mary, and it's very, very biblical and historical. One of the things I find interesting is when you look at, and again, the history of this is the oldest known prayer asking for the intercession of Mary, the Subtuum Presidium, was written before the Bible was put together. And, you know, so that notion of looking at Mary as a source of intercession to Jesus for us is as old as the church, and this is not something that you would hear talked about in a Southern Baptist church. Absolutely, absolutely, Deacon. And you know, um, for 2,000 years, the Blessed Virgin Mary has been vital to Christian faith. Uh, even our Orthodox brothers and sisters, and, and you know, I always like to say some Protestants even, uh, coming from the higher church, have a much different understanding than us fundamental, fundamentalists type Baptist did, but as you pointed out, even the early Christian councils and the early Christian creeds, the ancient divine liturgies and masses are all, you know, jam-packed with honor and uh, in, in requesting intercession from the Blessed Virgin Mary. One of the things 
going back to the CD, what inspired you to put out the CD? What was your intended target audience, and what were you trying to contribute to the general understanding of how the church sees Mary? Well, I think the first thing that really uh, drove me to create this CD, uh, Mary, the Mother of Our Lord, is that I wanted my Protestant brothers and sisters to be able to have a central place that they could go and say, here is the evidence or, or much of the biblical and historical evidence that pointed a former Protestant uh, you know, to the Catholic Church. And, and I wanted to help uh, my Protestant brothers and sisters overcome some of those hurdles and misconceptions about the Blessed Virgin Mary that I used to believe but found them to be not true. But the other reason that I put the CD out is that, you know, I discovered that many uh, cradle Catholics, for example, are, are maybe Catholics that haven't been uh, fully catechized in, a, in a, uh, a deeper sense, may not fully understand or appreciate the things about Mary that I, that I began to discover that were just completely uh, awesome, you know, uh, totally life-changing about who Mary is and her role in intercession in our everyday, you know, Christian life. And so I wanted to help not only Protestants, but some Catholics who fully maybe, you know, don't understand uh, what we believe and why about, about Mary. One of the things you talk about on the CD is this notion of typology, especially uh, as it refers to Mary. Is this something that you remember from a Southern Baptist background, or is typology something that tends to lean much more Catholic? I understood typology a little bit when it began to uh, unravel in terms of who Christ is and, and his relationship uh, to, to Adam. You know, as an example of that typological relationship, of course, just to recall St. Paul saying that Adam is a type of, of Christ. And we get that from Romans chapter 5. You know, Adam, who is the type of the one who is to come, and of course, that is Jesus Christ. So when you compare... Adam of the Old Testament, you know, you find this typological relationship uh, between Adam and the Old Testament and the new Adam, which of course is Jesus in the New Testament. But where we stopped uh, was, was not, was just Jesus. We, we didn't, I say just Jesus, we applied it to Jesus as our Lord, but we never looked at what about if you compared that same typological relationship between Eve and Mary? And, you know, it's so interesting when you begin looking at the early church fathers and, and St. Irenaeus in the second century comes to mind when he said that great line that the knot of Eve's disobedience was loosed by the obedience of Mary. And then he further said, for what the virgin Eve had bound fast to unbelief, this did the virgin Mary set free through faith. So these early, you know, church fathers and these early uh, doctors of the church were all pointing towards this, this typological relationship between Eve in the Old Testament and the new Eve, which is Mary, in the New Testament. And when you see that relationship, uh, things like, uh, you know, the Immaculate Conception uh, begin to take place. The biblical roots of those begin to become clear. And in addition, the, the early church fathers drew a distinct comparison to the Ark of the Old Covenant and the Ark of the New Covenant in that typology sense. And uh, this, again, is something, you know, 
that it's been part of the Catholic Church from the very beginning, but it was probably new to you coming in from the Southern Baptist tradition. It certainly was. You know, uh, you know as a Southern Baptist, um, I, I, I can remember uh, almost where I was when I began to see Mary for who Catholics or the Catholic Church, you know, claimed she was. And, and as you pointed out, it was when I began to see Mary is, in fact, the Ark of the New Covenant. And I always like to, to travel down this road because I think it will help so many others that, you know, if you look in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant carried those three things. And, and, th- and those three things were the stone tablets, which are the word of God, the Aaron's rod, which is the, you know, the high priest staff, and manna, which is bread from heaven. And when you compare those, you know, the Ark of the Old Covenant and what it carried to, you know, Mary in the New Testament, you find that she carried the Word of God, who is Jesus, our high priest, who is Jesus, and the bread of life, who is Jesus Christ. So it becomes abundantly clear that Mary is, in fact, the Ark of the New Covenant, and that has huge ramifications uh, for our faith. But I also like to, to carry that just one step further. If, you know, if you remember in Exodus 40, the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Ark of the Covenant. But if you fast forward in Luke 1, you know, Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And so like the Ark of the Old Covenant was the dwelling place of God. So now Mary, the Ark of the New Covenant, is also the dwelling place of God. You've already touched on the four principal dogmas of the Catholic faith in relationship to Mary. But in your um, uh, CD, you talk a little bit about all four of them. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the dogma of Mary as mother of God and how you explain this on the CD? Yeah, so so the, the Catholic Church teaches those four Marian dogmas. And one of those is that the Catholic Church teaches that Mary is indeed the mother of God. And so the, the reasoning is, is fairly simple, that Jesus is fully human and Jesus is fully God. Mary is Jesus's mother. And so therefore, we find that Mary is the mother of God. And it's, it's fairly uh, straightforward, but, but it's deeper than that, too, because if you go back and you begin looking in places like uh, you know, the, the New Testament, uh, you know, you find these, these relationships, like in John chapter 19, for example, Mary standing near the cross, and, you know, Jesus said to her, dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. Well, see, as a Protestant, that was troublesome for me, that Catholics would say, well, you know, you know Mary is our mother, but right here, you know, Jesus uh, is, is telling this disciple that here is your mother, but wait a minute, Mary was not John's biological mother, you see, so, uh, but here, uh, John is called Mary's son, and Mary is called John's mother, and so this dilemma um, I had to wrestle with for quite a long time, because if Jesus could say that Mary was the disciple's mother, I could too, because we're to be like the beloved disciple. And especially when we look at this in context of the church being the body of Christ and Mary as the mother of God is also the mother of the body of Christ. And so, you know, that dual notion of motherhood to 
Jesus and to the body of Christ, the church, makes a whole lot of sense to me. So, Absolutely. And I also, uh, you know, in, in Revelation 12, you know, it, talk, it talks about this dragon, you know, being angry with a woman and, and went off to make this war against her offspring and, you know, against these people who bared witness uh, to Jesus. You know, so who is that woman? Well, we know that's Mary. Uh, but we find that if you keep reading, this woman in Revelation has other children. And, and those other children are those who bear testimony, of course, to Jesus Christ. And therefore, they're Christians. And so we can see that Mary is an individual spiritual mother. And also, as you point out, mother of the body of Christ, mother of the church. One of the other dogmas that the church has uh, put forth is the perpetual virginity of Mary. And again, this is something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to most Southern Baptists because Scripture refers to Jesus's brothers and sisters. So how do you explain this? Well, in the Old Testament, you know, and going back to that Ark of the Covenant, if you if you recall, the Ark of the Covenant was was covered with gold, and, and you know the the Ark of the Covenant was covered in gold both inside and out, and and by definition, gold is associated, especially in the Old Testament, uh, with purity, with holiness, with consecration, with separateness for God, and so we find that that foreshadows Mary, the Ark of the New Covenant, because she was likewise kept pure and holy and consecrated to God both inside and out. And so you begin to see this idea, this truth of the immaculate conception of Mary. And the same thing with the perpetual virginity of Mary. You know, the Ark of the Covenant um, back in you know, 2 Samuel could never be touched by a sinful man. Likewise, in the New Testament, the new Ark of the Covenant, which is Mary, could never be touched by a sinful man. So you, you begin seeing, you know, the perpetual virginity of Mary, the immaculate conception of Mary uh, emerge uh, through these uh, typological relationships, just as the early Christians and the early church fathers had always taught. And that's what the Catholic Church continues to teach today. It's a beautiful thing, Deacon Mike. Again, I want to remind our listeners, we're talking to Troy Guy, uh, who put out the CD, Mary, the Mother of Our Lord, and he is a self-professed evangelical Catholic and is extremely enthusiastic about our faith. Uh, again, a reminder, we're, this program is pre-recorded, so we won't be able to take any of your phone calls. Back to the four dogmas. Um, the Immaculate Conception is, of course, intimately tied to the notion of the perpetual virginity of Mary and her status as the Ark of the New Covenant. Uh, would you touch a little bit on that? So as Christians, we can find the fact that the Ark of the New Covenant is very powerful in the life of the Christian. If you think back to, for example, the Ark of the Covenant being God's holy presence, or back to the Battle of Jericho, we can see that the Ark of the New Covenant becomes very spiritually active in our lives. In other words, Mary is very practical uh, to the Christian daily walk. And the fourth of the church's dogmas on Mary is one of the more difficult ones because it talks about the assumption 
of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which is something that perhaps doesn't even come up in discussion in Protestant circles, at least not in the evangelical Protestant circles. So how do you touch on the assumption of Mary? Well, the Catholic Church teaches the assumption of Mary, and of course, just to remind our listeners that we're saying that, or the Church is teaching us that after the completion of Mary's earthly life, she was assumed body and soul into the glory of heaven. And of course, many times uh, I'm asked, well, well, how can we prove that? You know, how can we show that? Well, if you go back and you look in early Christian history, churches were, were dogmatic almost about claiming the site or claiming the burial place, uh, you know, of, of a person, Peter, Paul, etc., uh, St. Thomas. But the question could be asked as to where is the grave site of Mary? What church claimed that, you know, that the grave of Mary, that there's no, none that exists. And so practically speaking, we see that the assumption of Mary, uh, that she was, you know, taken into heaven is very consistent with God's plan uh, of the immaculate conception and the perpetual uh, virginity of Mary. And I think that's something important to remember, that sometimes the lack of evidence actually is evidence of uh, something else. Absolutely. Great, great point, Deacon. And, um, you know, I find that that's when I discovered these, these four Catholic uh, truths about Mary, uh, these four, uh, you know, Marian dogmas, uh, I found that each of them in turn uh, had solid biblical, historical, theological, logical, uh, and so on support. So as, as Catholics, uh, we should understand them and proudly proclaim them, believe them, and that includes the Assumption of Mary. Now, uh the CD, Mary, the Mother of Our Lord, is it out already for purchase? It is out for purchase on discoverhischurch.com. Uh, the title of the CD is Mary, the Mother of Our Lord, and I go into great detail uh, all the way back from the church fathers, which were very instrumental uh, in helping me see these doctrines, uh, helping you know point me uh, to scriptures that showed me where in the Bible uh, we can see these as we've kind of touched on here. Uh, but I wanted to go back to one point. You know, when we talk about the four dogmas, uh, I think it's so critical to remember that in the Catholic Church, all dogmas were once doctrines which have always been believed, sometimes even before formally being captured or proclaimed as a dogma. And as a Protestant, this shouldn't be uh, very difficult because you can look at the, you know, the, the definition or, or, sorry, the word Trinity, for example. You know, we, we, don't, we don't find the, the word Bible in the Bible, Trinity, and so on. All these things, even though they're true, uh, the way that the Christian understanding of those, uh, you know, maybe took some time to further develop and, and refine, uh, but the truth never changed. Um, and so I wanted to just point out that all the dogmas that were once doctrines, so there's been no uh, addition or, you know, kind of a made-up thing that I used to believe as a Protestant that these Catholics made this, you know, in the 16th, 17th, 18th you know, century, because we can go back and we can see that the early church fathers and the early church already believed these things about Mary. And I believe what's so important here too, Deacon, is that as we, as we consider, um, it's in my case, a Protestant foundations, you know, my Protestant founders, for example, believe the very same things the Catholic church teaches today. It's just that even today, now, many Protestant churches have broken off from their own founders' beliefs 
about the Blessed Virgin Mary. So it really puts modern Protestantism, I like to say, on the horns of a very serious dilemma. And I think that uh, one of the things that I've noted looking at, you know, the history of the church is a lot of the things that we hear the church explaining isn't that the church has just decided to explain this. It's usually because someone has then decided to challenge something the church has taught from the very beginning, and the church found it necessary to go into detail to explain it to refute some of the heresies or objections that came up over time. Absolutely, and that's precisely what we see the, uh, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church that you know was created in the first century doing. Uh, and it's always done that, and um, that's part of uh, the perpetual uh, you know, truths that have been passed down to us all the way from, from the apostles. Absolutely. But if you look at the, you know, the, you know, for example, the first, second, third centuries, uh, going all the way back um, to, to origin of Alexandria or Athanasius, you know, in the fourth century, um, origin being in the third century, or Ambrose, the, you know, the great bishop of Milan in the fourth century, Jerome. Uh, even later on in the 5th century, you know, Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, uh, then there's Cyril of Alexandria, and you can go on and on and on. These church fathers taught, defended, and believed Mary's uh, perpetual virginity, for example. And so, again, when you compare that to what Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli, uh, you know, they also believed the perpetual virginity of Mary. But again, founders of Protestantism, um, and the Protestantism that we're in today have greatly divided again in what, what you know, was supposed to be one united church, but it's, of course, divided even further in Protestantism. And I think this is a perfect segue into just talking about evangelization in general and uh, why it's so important for Catholics to understand their faith and talk about it in public. So one of the ob objectives of uh, discovering his church is exactly that, right? That's right. We, uh, we want to be able to encourage our fellow uh, uh, brothers and sisters in the faith, our Catholic brothers and sisters in our faith, uh, to, you know, to learn their faith, because it'll help you grow as a Catholic Christian, help you be strengthened in your faith, uh, help you know why you go to adoration, you know, why do we ask the Blessed Virgin Mary for her intercession? Uh, and of course, a, a Protestant might be thinking, well, I don't need to ask her. I go straight to God. Well, amen, says the Catholic, right? We, we agree that's true, too. We also agree go straight to God. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it doesn't ask, it doesn't prevent you, Deacon Mike, from me asking you for prayers. You know, you're a you're a prayer warrior, as we used to say in Protestantism. And so, uh, you know, the saints are prayer warriors. There's certainly not a body of Christ on earth and a totally separate body of Christ in heaven that, that uh, you know, we, we are one body of Christ. And so when Catholics begin to understand that and, and feel the weight of these truths, uh, they begin to be bold and to be able to share in love, uh, in gentleness, I might add, the truths that have been passed down to us. And so Discover His Church is uh, out there doing that. We're actively uh, going around the country, uh, speaking and talking and sharing our faith and encouraging our brothers and sisters to uh, know their faith and, of course, share their faith boldly as well. In general, do you find that Catholics, especially faithful Catholics, are 
hungry to learn their faith, or are they comfortable with where they are? Well, there's a great mix, and uh, certainly would hate to you know generalize too much, but I think that I think we can all have more fire in our faith, uh, and that includes myself. You know, we can all have that point that. We say, you know, I'm, I'm living for, for one of two things, and I want to live for Christ and his church. I want to, I want to, I want to follow Jesus where he's leading me. And, and so by understanding that he, you know, if we love Jesus, we'll love his church. And, and, and when you do that, you begin to find an even deeper purpose for your life. And I think that's made so many people uh, turn around in their faith and become on fire for, for the Lord. And I think uh, just— from personal experience, the more I got to learn about the history of the faith, the reasonableness of the faith, the more enthusiastic I became about learning more about it. And so do you see that as being part of the effort of evangelization is to just plant those seeds? I do. I think that is so critical uh, in our walk today. You know, uh, whether it's uh, in particular today, you know, we're talking about Mary, but it could also be the Bible. You know, where did the Bible come from? Is it reliable? Uh, you know, the apostles, what did they pass down? How do we know they passed down, that we're receiving what they passed down? You know, in my case as a Protestant, it, it frankly bothered me that there were 33,000 or however many thousand different Protestant denominations, each claiming truth, but there was something slightly different in between them. They, they, we could never come together, uh, and so it pointed me not to Protestantism, but to the Catholic Church, who was one church united all the way since the time of Christ. And so you begin to get strengthened the more you know. Uh, of course, we don't want it to just stay in our head. It needs to go to our heart and be manifest in our daily life. But when we do, I find that we're stronger Christians for Christ, and not only for ourselves, but for our families. Again, we're talking with Troy Guy, whose website is Discover His Church, and uh, we're talking about evangelization. We touched a little bit on, on the CD, uh, Mary, the Mother of Our Lord, but we're talking about evangelization in general. And again, this is a pre-recorded segment, so we won't be able to take your phone calls. But Troy, when we are talking about evangelization, and of, in the last few years, this has gotten much bigger in the Catholic Church than it used to be. You didn't talk much about evangelization. Why do you see it, think that it's starting to grow as much as it has? Well, I think that there's a great yearning uh, to, to seek Christ on behalf of, you know, people, and, uh, you know, they're starting to ask a lot of questions. But I think that there's a lot of interest in, am I in the right church? You know, how do I know I'm in the right church? Uh, and, you know, we see that, uh, of course, the, um, you know, the, 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 the challenges that the Catholic Church has faced in the last, you know, 20 years in particular, uh, you know, those, those things have, have given people a pause and to say, you know, am I really uh, in the church for why I believe I'm here? And so, uh, you know, it's almost as though God is raising up a, a um, you know, a, a evangelical, if you will, uh, you know, stint that we, of course, it's always been there. Even the church fathers have been, you know, you know, very much on fire for the Lord and spreading their faith. Uh, but in particular today, there's a call to answer the question as to why I should be Catholic when I can be anything else. And so there's um, a great desire for, for certain evangelists, I guess, to be, you know, who are called to, to kind of help that. 
and certainly it's a it's a question I see out in the um, you know in the world today as um, as I travel around many people are saying so why are you Catholic why are you not Baptist why are you not atheist why are you not Presbyterian and so on and so to have a ready answer for that and be able to articulate that but most of all to believe it and live it uh, I think is life changing. I have the sense that in a way the Catholic Church owes a debt to the Protestant denomination when it comes to evangelization, because until recently, we were very reluctant to talk about our faith outside of church. And I think we came to the awareness that there's value in sharing what we believe because we believe it to be true. Absolutely. You know, I would add to that thought that, uh, you know, my— I have a family member who, of course, grew up Protestant, and to this day, they still say, you know, faith is something that is personal. Don't talk about it, kind of like politics. Don't go there. You know, that's my business, um, and, that, and that's great, you know, but, but I, the point I'm making is it's not only a Catholic issue. Uh, our Protestant brothers and sisters, some of them in some denominations, aren't so evangelical, if you will. It's more of a private matter. It's something held closely. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, we, we do owe a little bit of a debt uh, for, to our, our Protestant brothers and sisters, um, you know, for reminding us of the fire that we have within us to share the good news of Jesus Christ to a dying world that needs to hear the truth and hear that Jesus established uh, a way of salvation and a church that's right here with its doors open waiting for them to come home. So it's a beautiful truth and good news. Now, when you first came into the Catholic Church. Am I correct in assuming that uh, evangelization for the Catholic Church wasn't the first thought through your head? What led you to believe that this needed to be done? You know, Deacon, that's a wonderful thought because you're absolutely right. Uh, When I came into the church, uh, the Catholic Church, it wasn't what was in the Catholic Church that pointed me necessarily to the Catholic Church. It was what I was seeing in Protestantism uh, that, that drove me to the Catholic Church, which is a kind of an interesting thought. It, it Maybe not as intuitive as it seems. But yes, absolutely. Uh, when I got into the Catholic Church, I began asking a lot of questions. Uh, you know, a, a fiery little Protestant guy coming in saying, hey, well, where do, you, where do you find this in the Bible? And where do you find that in the Bible? And well, what about this? And uh, what I found was, quite frankly, a, a, uh, a shallow, at least where I'm located, a shallow understanding of Catholic faith. And so I dug deeper and deeper, uh, started listening to tapes, books, anything I could get my hands on, attending conferences and on, so on. And I realized that our Catholic faith is so deep, so rich, so beautiful, that I, I wanted everybody to see what I was experiencing. And I wanted to continue that um, in the church. And we see that in some churches here in Houston that have, I, I like to say, caught the fire, if you will. The fire is always there, of course. Jesus is there in the Eucharist. He never left us. And so, um, but there's, there's things that, that we can grow with. And so that's part of the reason for discoverhischurch.com and our ministry is to try to help, again, Catholics and non-Catholics understand the faith as it was passed down to us all the way back from the apostles themselves. For most of us Catholic or people that came into the Catholic Church, the thought of confirmation is basically just another step 
on what we look at the sacramental ladder rather than a life-changing event. But listening to you talk, it reminds me much more of that upper room after the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, that notion that we have to go out and share this. And I think we sort of have lost that drive for evangelization that was always intended to be there. That's the whole meaning of the sacrament of confirmation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, some people, and especially Protestant brothers and sisters, will say, well, that's a sacramental view. You know, nothing, you know, grace is not imparted through matter in any way. And so there's a rejection of, you know, sacramentalism. Um, but the idea that I found comforting, at least for me, when I became Catholic, was that, that in baptism, for example, now I had already been baptized, but in baptism, something does happen. You know, if you think back of Jesus, you know, you hear the Father, you, you know, you see the Holy Spirit, and you've got Jesus, you've got the Holy Trinity there. You know, Jesus, actually, if we go by his example, something truly does happen in the sacrament of baptism. And of course, all the other sacraments, you know, the the Holy Eucharist, you know, that's not a symbol. That's the body, blood, and soul of, of Jesus Christ, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ. And we see that in John 6 and the church fathers and logic and history. Uh, in fact, I have another CD all about that, and it's in the book. But if you see this way of sacramentalizing uh, the faith, which is what, you know, the Lord handed down, these are life-changing events that are meant to not just you know, be three checks in a, in a box, but to, to be transforming. And so I'm, I guess what I'm saying, uh, Deacon, is if we were able to share this uh, more clearly with those who are coming through our churches, our RCIA programs, our adult faith formation programs, I think we would see a huge turnaround in, in the Catholic Church today. And I think this is the whole point of evangelization, is to reinvigorate Catholics to the awesomeness of what the church actually teaches. And I think it's a challenge for all of us, be it evangelists, priests, deacons, lay people. It's in our day-to-day activities. Do we exude that enthusiasm? And how do we explain why we're enthusiastic? You know, I love... uh... Somebody, and I don't know who precisely said it, but, you know, the, the church today has been catechized, it's been sacramentalized, but it's never been evangelized. And so I, I just would encourage uh, our listeners to, you know, pick up the, you know, the, the catechism and really go through it. It's not a dead document. It's, a, it's very much a scriptural document. Uh, read the Bible, the, the, the Word of God, written Word of God is alive. You know, attend Mass, understand what the Eucharist is understanding why we believe what we believe about the Blessed Virgin Mary, where tradition comes from, uh, and on and on and on. And and I think that uh, it is a life-changing process. And that's why you see, Deacon, so many Protestants uh, of of different flavors and colors and ranks coming into the beautiful Catholic Church today because they're discovering these truths that were not passed down to them in their Protestant churches. And I've always been or at least for the last dozen years or so, been active in RCIA. And every year I'm astonished at how enthusiastic people become when they realize that all these things that we talk about in the Catholic Church, 
have been there for 2,000 years. And all of them are intimately connected to what came before in the what we refer to as the Old Testament. But all of it ultimately is just the revelation of God. And so the evangelization, in my view, is ultimately just perpetuating what RCIA is trying to do on a grander scale of enlivening others to how wonderful our faith is. And that's been my experience, too. Absolutely. Um, this, evan- this idea of evangelizing and evangelism has always been there. Uh, it, you know, it's nothing that somebody just created out of Protestantism, and it just kind of came out of the Catholic Church by a, a bunch of zealous people. You know, if you go back to the Church Fathers, they not only lived for their faith, they not only taught their faith, they not only practiced their faith, but they died of a public display of their faith. And so this faith of the first century is the same faith found in the Catholic Church in this century. And so we can look, no, we just have to look back at the church fathers and see this great zeal for people to come home to the church that Jesus created. And I think this is something that also we need to communicate to people. So often we're faced with these things like the Catholic Church added books to the Bible or the Catholic Church uh, started teaching this in the Middle Ages and this sort of thing. But that notion that the Catholic Church hasn't changed in the 2,000 years, it's the world around it that has changed. And some of the things that were changed by different denominations that now seem to be norm when they're actually additions or subtractions from the faith that was taught by the early church. Oh, absolutely. And the Bible is a great example of that. You know, if you, uh, I used to think as a Protestant that the Holy Spirit put together the Bible and indeed that's, you know, that's, that's true. The, The Holy Spirit guided the Bibles. But at the same time, what instrument did the Holy Spirit use for the collection of the Bible in the third, fourth, fifth centuries, the Catholic Church and her bishops. And so it's true to say that we owe, that is Protestants owe, a great debt to the Catholic Church for the very Bible that they're reading. And so when you look at it in that light, all these things have been passed down to us. Um, it's kind of hard not to come home uh, to the Catholic Church. And I would, I would just say one more thing, Deacon, is that, you know, as a Southern Baptist, uh, many, many people have asked me, um, what about all those scandals? You know, it always seems to come up. And it's a great legitimate question. Uh, but it's almost as though there's not a scandal in the in the Baptist church, for example. You know, there's sin is sin and it's everywhere. But, you know, recently we've had, uh, you know, uh, the Southern Baptist had a big news article, 700 people, you know, abused and 20 and so on and so on. But again, it's sin no matter what church you're in, but we have a promise from our Lord that the gates of hell in Matthew 16, 18 will never prevail against the church that Jesus established in the first century. We're nearing the end of the interview, so I want to give you a little bit of time to, one, talk a little bit about the importance of evangelization from your viewpoint and your website, uh, discoverhischurch.com, and remind listeners again about uh, your CD. Evangelism is something that we can all do. Uh, We can all evangelize by our lifestyle, but not only our lifestyle, by our words as well. And so we can demonstrate the love of Christ to the people around us. 
uh, the people at work, and it can be done. It's as easy as saying a simple prayer. It's as easy as praying for somebody that you know you see as a need, but more so go and, and lend them help. You don't have to preach to them, but just be there and help them and maybe ask, would it be okay if I prayed for you? And people will naturally understand and see Christ in you, but always use your words as well. God does love you. You know, there's a church for you and so on. So I would encourage every Catholic listening to be bold in your faith, again, with gentleness and love, and people will, will come home to the Catholic Church. Uh, our ministry, discoverhischurch.com, uh, we actually have a new booklet out as well called The Nicene Creed, and the title is How the Nicene Creed Points Directly to the Catholic Church. So that's a new product as well. Uh, we've got a lot of talks coming on. They're all listed on the website. And again, the, this current CD is Mary, the Mother of Our Lord, and I think it answers at least most of the Protestant questions that I struggled with, and so far we've um, got positive feedback from it. I hope that we can have you back on in the future, and uh, we will have Gene Wilhelm on next week, and I hope everyone joins us for that. In the meantime, when discerning how to share your time, talents, and treasure with the people of God always round up. <laughs>